Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read briefly from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And then we'll turn over to Proverbs chapter 10. Our sermon this morning will come from Proverbs chapter 10. But first, let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. Here at the end of the first chapter in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul gives us, though it is not his main goal, a lesson in how to give an insult. Paul sets up this extraordinary condemnation of the Corinthians. Well, as you all well know, most of you are ignorant and and poorly educated and not very wealthy or meaningful in the world. As most of you know, God is in the habit of calling to himself those who aren't much. You know, you and me. You know, the little people. That's who God gathers together in his church. He tells the Corinthians exactly what God told Israel in Deuteronomy 8. I didn't love you because you were wise. I didn't love you because you were big and powerful and important and strong. I loved you because... Has anyone memorized Deuteronomy 8? 
Jesus did that in the uh, wilderness. That's what he was quoting to Satan in the temptation, Deuteronomy 8. Jesus says, Moses says, I loved you because I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. Because my love is so great, it's big enough for you. This becomes the ground and fountain then of the wisdom of God in the gospel. That everything that God has for us in this world is now in Christ. Indeed, in verse 30, Paul keeps up prepositions that are so powerful of him, in him, for us. And then he lists the great nouns that we have in our order salutis, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Paul's point being, in the face of the totality of our insufficiency, we see at last the perfection of Christ. That he is all. And so he concludes in verse 31. If anyone's going to glory... Let him glory in the Lord. A word that Paul reserves for Jesus. Let's glory in Jesus. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 10. Our sermon this morning is from Proverbs chapter 10. We continue our series here through the book of Proverbs. I'm going to read verses 12 through 21. Proverbs chapter 10. Verses 12 through 21, Solomon is addressing his son, leaving for him this collection of Proverbs, this this wisdom to help him as he comes into his reign and rules over the people of God. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 12 through 21. You're now the word of the Lord. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Wisdom is found in the lips of him who has understanding, but a rod is for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Wise people store up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. The labor of the righteous leads to life. The wages of the wicked, sin. He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. Whoever hides hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. Amen and amen. Realtors will tell you that when it comes to selling a house, there are three things that matter, right? You have heard this? Location, location, location. I think my ruling elders will back me up on this. When it comes to strife in relationships, especially marriages, there are only three problems. Communication, communication, and communication. In fact, if you want to go out and invest in 
the studies, the quantitative studies that have been done by secular psychologists, they will tell you that everyone who comes to them for marriage or relationship counseling, something around 80% of all the complaints are communication. Anecdotally, I will note that in my pastoral experience, yes, it's communication. That most of the issues that we have in our relationships, marriage and otherwise, stem from this inability to get my thoughts and words accurately reflected in your thoughts and words. The inability to get my words to come out of my mouth the way I mean them. To get them to enter your ears the way I intend them, and vice versa. And so Solomon, knowing what a critical issue this is, in order to have a healthy community for his son, the prince, in order to have healthy relationships, Solomon seeks to equip his son to communicate, to speak well, to listen well. And he lays down this first principle of healthy relationships. It is like to what we heard last week about healthy communities. It's Jesus' love that saves relationships. It's Jesus' love that saves relationships. So in Him, let us love one another. Let us love one another with that love with which we have been loved. We love because he first loved us. Now let's work through what love looks like according to Solomon. Notice in verse 12, Solomon again lays down that central principle from which he will build the succeeding Proverbs. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Like all Proverbs, this one stands out as being relatively self-apparent. If you have hate, you end up stirring up strife. If you have love, you cover all sins. The reality is is that we have generally misunderstood this proverb. We have generally broken it down into ways that dissect it from its overall meaning. So, for instance, when we say hatred stirs up strife, what Solomon is saying is what Jesus himself will later develop. When he tells his disciples, everything that comes out of your mouth proceeds from the fullness of your heart. So one of the common problems we will have when we get into conflict with one another is we will say something particularly harsh or cruel. And when we are called out upon it, what do we say? I didn't mean that. Jesus says you're wrong. Jesus says that it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Because we were so filled with cruel and harsh feelings, we brought forth cruel and harsh words. Strife has a root. It is rooted in our hatred, our desire for ill will for one another. So often we attempt to paper over strife and conflict by saying, well, I didn't mean it, well, he didn't mean it, she didn't mean it, and we escape what Solomon and Jesus would have us understand about the world. We're a lot more evil than we want to pretend we are. And we're a lot more selfish than we allow ourselves to believe. And that the strife and the conflict that dwells within us, we could turn to James to get a third voice if we need that, 
Why is there division and discord among you? Because you are selfish. It is this desire for the ill will of others that stirs up strife. But there's an antidote. But there's an answer to this all too common problem. I don't like to share. I don't want others to have their way. I want to have my way. This ill will has an answer. It's love. There are a few passages in Proverbs that ring throughout our culture in common parlance like this phrase. But love covers all sins. But we have many times gotten it wrong. Let me count the ways. We think that covers means hide. Sweep it under the carpet. Ignore it and overlook it. It's not. It's actually the Hebrew word that means atonement. To drown in blood of self-sacrificial love. To cover sin, according to Solomon, is to accept a sacrifice in the place of the sinner. To cover it with the blood that was shed. We could jump pretty quick to the New Testament with this one, right? To forgive one another in Christ. To forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Secondly, he says that it covers all sins. Generally, we like to just prefer that word's not there. All sins. Not the ones we like to pick and choose. Not the ones that are easy for, to give forgive. Not Jerry Bridges. The acceptable sins. The respectable sins. All sins. Thirdly, not little pet peeves. Sins. Moral wrong. Actual evil. Actual error. Not mistakes, not missteps. When we throw out the phrase, love covers all sins, and we're referring to the fact that they don't make their dirty clothes into the hamper, we're downplaying what this actually means. Yes, love gives us patience. Love is patient. Love is kind. We endure with each other's eccentricities and oddities. But there is a much deeper meaning here when we say that love covers all sins. We mean those moral wrongs in which those we dearly love and who dearly love us have actually struck us and hurt us and harmed us. Fourth, but most importantly, love. I saved it for the end because I hope that by identifying the word cover as atonement, all as in all, and sin as in moral wrong, you have come with me on a little emotional journey to the sudden conclusion that when Proverbs says love covers all sin, they're not talking about my love. Because I can't do it. And if I preach this passage to you, As an ethical standard to which you must measure up, I have just bound you with a burden too heavy to carry. This is not your love. It's Christ's. There is a love that can cover all sin. There is a love that can forgive all sin. It's not yours. It's not from within. It's from above. It is Christ's love for us. You see, we must love one another in this way. We must love in a way that covers every sin that we experience in our relationship. But we have to get it from another source. From Christ. 
It cannot come from within. It must come from Christ above. This is the basic principle. That Solomon says to his son, if you are to love others, you must first be loved by Christ. And when you have drawn from that deep and inexhaustible well, which is Christ, and are thus filled with all manner of love by Christ, you are then able to love one another. This does not diminish your requirement to love in such a way that forgives all sin. It roots it in the proper source. Beloved, let us love one another. Let us love one another in a sin-covering way. Let us love one another in a forgiveness-giving way. Solomon now gives us five ways to bring this about. He gives us a little five-step dance, as it were, that works us into this great love of Christ that has forgiven us and empowers us to forgive one another. Notice in verses 13 and 14, we have a quatrain, four lines that hang together as a little piece of a poem. The first piece is that wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding. The last piece is but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. There are lips and mouth, that agent by which words are produced. But there are two types of mouths or lips in the world. There's the wise that bring forth wisdom, and there's the fool who brings forth destruction. This is self-evident, yes? We have had conversations with those who speak words that are wise, but we've also had conversations with those who speak words that are foolish. And we have felt destruction drawing near when we hear the folly. Notice in the middle then, verses 13 and 14, there is a rod for the back of him who is devoid of understanding, while wise people store up knowledge. That is to say that those who are without understanding, those who are foolish in the final line, are aggregating on their backs all of this abuse from the rod. All of what verse verse 12 called strife. They are accumulating conflict. Each relationship to which they turn results in a fight. Results in rods being leveled. Conflict after conflict erupts everywhere they turn because they are devoid of understanding. They are foolish. But in the other place is the wise, the one who has understanding and who is storing up knowledge. That is, on his back or her back is an aggregation, a gathering of knowledge and of understanding and of wisdom. There's a rich nuance here that Solomon is bringing out. He doesn't simply mean knowledge and understanding of the world around us. He means of one another. What he speaks of is sympathy. What he speaks of is compassion. The first step in producing a life of love that covers a multitude of sins is listening to sinners. We see this in the life of Jesus. He's with a woman at the well in the middle of the day in John chapter 4. And he starts asking her questions. Woman, give me a drink. Man, that's quite impossible. I am a Samaritan. My hand is unclean. As soon as I touch the cup, you can't drink it. He's like, you're right. You should be asking me for a drink because my hand is clean and I can cleanse you. 
She perceives the tension and picks on the racism and begins to engage on the ethnic conversation. He sweeps it away and says, no, this is a theological problem. It's about your relationship with God. He's listening to her. In the end, he says to her, you're here at the well at noon because you can't come in the cool of the day where all the other women come. You're an outcast. And you have been outcast for a reason. You're on your fifth man and he's not your husband. Your sins have accumulated so many rods on your back that you are at the well alone in the heat of the day. But he is not cruel to her. He is not harsh to her. He does not lead with the accusation. He leads with the questions. He is a wise Messiah who teases out from her with a listening and understanding ear both the sin and the sorrow that has brought her to this well at Sychar. He has understanding, a sympathy and a compassion. This, my friends, is what Solomon would have us produce in our relationships. A listening ear. How do I cover sin with love? I listen to sinners. I ask them questions. I lean into the conversation. But then secondly... Solomon says we meet needs. In verses 15 and 16, Solomon sets up a second word picture. The rich man's wealth is his strong city. Notice at the end again, the wages of the wicked lead to sin. The metaphor is one of wealth and of prosperity. Solomon notes that a rich man has a wealth like a strong city with tall walls that run all the way around and keep him safe. I'll give you a hypothetical example. Imagine you're living in an economy where inflation is running away and food gets really expensive. Can you do this? And as we imagine this, there's somebody who's surrounded by this really high wall of wealth and the high prices of food aren't a problem because they have a lot of food. They have a lot of money. And they're safe inside their strong city. Solomon contrasts this image in verse 15 with the destruction of the poor is their poverty. What happens to somebody who barely has enough in their budget to buy food and the cost of food goes up? They get less food. It's that simple. Their destruction is in their poverty. They have no margin. They have no tall wall around them. Solomon lays out a very clear and simple metaphor that riches are a benefit, something that is good to have. So on the one hand, let me apply it simply as work hard, save your money. It's good for you. On the other hand, notice the next verse. The labor of the righteous leads to life. Of all the riches to have in life, there are no riches greater than righteousness. For while riches can surround like a citadel the rich man and keep his life safe, it is only his righteousness that can save the lives of the poor. It is only his righteousness by which he can dispense those riches leading to the life-giving generosity. In like manner, the wages, the income, the wealth that accumulates to the wicked is sin. 
They do not produce life in the world. They produce sin in the world. In this way, Solomon instructs his son to go through the world dispensing his riches. So notice he has to first get them, but then he has to dispense them. As a generous act of righteousness by which giving life to the world around him. This is exemplified in the life of Christ. Do you guys remember what his portfolio looked like? He does give us a description of his... uh, What is that word, Tom? It just totally went out of my head. Where you add up your debts and your income and your net worth. Jesus does give us uh, a statement of his net worth. No house. No bed. No home. No job. No income. There's his net worth. And he is the light of the world. And he is life everlasting because he has the one set of riches that matter. Righteousness. He is perfectly, sinlessly righteous. In the abundance of his righteous labors, there is life. And the wages of the wicked lead to sin. But Christ leads to life. In this way, we who are united to Christ are able to respond to other sins by meeting their needs, by righteously caring for them. This is the, t- the, the principle that Solomon lays down to his son. If you want healthy relationships, you're going to have to cover sin with love. That means listening to them. Listening to the sinner, it means meeting the sinner's need. It means responding to their wrongdoing with righteousness. Not answering evil with evil, but evil with good. With righteous service to others. Thirdly, Solomon says that there must be a humble heart. Not only do we cover sin with love by listening to one another, by serving one another, we then submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21 In verse 17, he who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray. The one who keeps instruction, that is, guards, cherishes, delights in, and keeps safe, instruction is in the way of life. The way to get through life is to receive instruction. Young ones, let me let you in on a secret. Life is going to be full of instructions. Your parents are constantly giving you instructions. Guess what happens when you leave the parents? You get lots more people who give you instructions. You go from having two people who give you instructions to going to 2,000 people who give you instructions. You will always be receiving instructions. At some point, we as humans have to wake up. We're not going to get through life without instructions. But will we receive them? Will we keep them and guard them? Will we rejoice in their corrections? When we look at this in the context of love covering sin, let us urge one another to recognize this truth. There is no criticism you will receive that doesn't have a grain of truth. There is always something to seek that you can find to be true. In fact, I can actually take the point a little farther and quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Who said, anytime someone criticizes you, don't be upset with him. Just realize how far short of the truth he has fallen. 
recognize how much worse you really are. The truth is, my friends, that there is truth in every correction. Not total truth, not complete truth, but there is room for humility in every instruction. And this is the way of life, to learn and to grow from even those criticisms which are hard. But he who refuses correction goes astray, or leads himself astray, leads himself into the straying path away from life. It is the incorrigible, which, contrary to sound of music, doesn't mean you want to be treated like a little boy. It actually means that you don't want to be taught, and that you are not responsive to instruction. Those who harden themselves in a self-righteous, self-confident, self-assertive posture, and will not welcome the input from others, inevitably go astray. All of the romantics from Germany and England and France who have for 400 years been feeling our heads with the little Disney line, be yourself, are wrong. We don't know who we are or who we ought to be. The truth is not within us. The love that we need for one another is not within us. We need to receive instruction and correction. We need humility beneath the rebukes of one another. We need to respond lovingly to correction. Listen to one another. Serve one another. And accept correction from one another. Accept instruction from one another. This is the way our relationships live. And we walk together in the way of life. Solomon then turns to an interesting contrast. Indeed, he creates a paradox that is a difficulty for us to understand. Notice in verses 18 and 19, again a quatrain, he says, Whoever hides hatred as lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Solomon poetically heaps up three negatives before finally relieving us with the positive in the last position. Whoever hides hatred, notice that's the theme of the passage, that the one who hates another wishes harm on another, but now one who hides it with lying lips. Notice the mouth here, the communication here, is full of deceit and untruth. There's misleading words that keep you from knowing the reality of the heart. But secondly, they spread slander like a fool. These words go out to the harm of others. Untruths that not only obscure ill intention, but untruths that then hurt and harm others. Thirdly, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. There are few phrases in all the Bible that brings a preacher up cold. As I monologue to you for 30 minutes, Solomon in the middle says, Dear preacher, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Solomon says to his son, Love covers all sin. By listening, by serving, by submitting to correction, and by keeping silence. But he who restrains his lips is wise. 
There is a godly silence in the face of sin to which we are sometimes called. Once again, I can turn to the life of that chief son of Solomon, that most wise of all men, the very wisdom of God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who stood before his accusers, who maliciously slandered him, who gossiped about him, and who were actively verbally seeking his death. And what does he say to Pilate? Nothing. He maintains silence. In the face of slander and sin, he responds with restrained lips. He is wise. He does not hide their hatred. They lay it bare in their deceits and in their cursing and in their slander. And he restrains his lips. Why does Christ do this? I mean, really, at the end of the day, what is so extraordinarily loving about him covering over their slanderous lies with his silence. Because, of course, if Jesus tells the truth, he's not going to get crucified and we're still in our sin. He has to let them lie. That's how he saves us. My friends, our silence in the face of sin is only warranted when we are expressing that salvific love of Christ. When we are revealing to another the kind of saving love that stands silently and covers over sin. Atones for it. I will accept that. I will pay that price. Christ was silent before his accusers, his slanderers, those liars the chief priests and elders, because he loved us enough to cover our sin with his blood. Let us love one another in like manner. Let us maintain this godly patience, kindness that is expressed in silence, covering over one another's sin. But I warned you there's a contrast in the paradox. Solomon then ends with speaking. We don't stay silent the whole time and we're not always silent. We don't sweep the sin under the carpet and ignore it. But rather there is a place and time to speak. Notice in verses 20 and 21, Solomon says that the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. But notice then in verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many. And in between the tongue of the righteous and the lips of the righteous which are choice silver, buying much food for many, is the heart of the wicked, which is worth little. In fact, in Hebrew, it's it's literally is little. The heart is small. Because this brings us back to the central principle that what we say to each other comes out of the heart. The wicked, in verse 21, die from a lack of wisdom. They die from literally, do you guys have this footnote in there? My Bible has this footnote. The word wisdom here is literally heart. They have little hearts and they die from a lack of heart. You know, it's, it's like the Grinch without the happy ending. Their hearts are too small. So they die from having too small of a heart. There isn't enough love to speak the truth. There isn't enough love to bring forth choice silver 
Words that are precious and dear and enriching to people's lives. Words that make people's lives better and prosperous and peaceful. They they haven't big enough hearts in order to bring forth words that feed many, that nourish and strengthen others. What could possibly be on the tongue of the righteous and be compared with choice silver? What could possibly drip from the lips of the righteous and and be a word that nourishes many? Well, I can think of several words that qualify. Let me give you one. Jesus. When we say the name Jesus, when we speak the truth of the gospel, His love covered my sin, we feed many. And we give choice silver to those who are poor. We give abundant food to those who are hungry. But the heart that is so small, so self-contained, so self-obsessed, that the word Jesus never comes out, they perish without the fount of wisdom, which is Christ. Indeed, we might say it this way in a slight nuance on last week's sermon. We saw at the end of that text how there was the head of Christ, the hands of Christ, the feet of Christ, the heart of Christ, and we put it all together and we said, wow, Solomon just made a poem about the body of Christ, the church. Here now we have a poem about the heart of Christ that animates that body, his love. I love you because Christ loved me. Do you love one another because Christ loved you? It's the only love that's going to get us through. Do you love your spouse, your children, your parents because Christ loved you? It's the only love that will do. Friends, Jesus' love saves relationships. In Him, love one another. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this incredible instruction from Solomon. And we pray that we would all be his sons, sitting at his feet and receiving with humble hearts these instructions. Growing up into the likeness of Christ who perfectly fulfilled all these principles... And who now, through the power of His Spirit, is conforming us to this image. That we, like Him, would listen to one another. That we, like Him, would serve one another. That we, like Him, would submit to one another. That we, like Him, would keep silence and speak nourishing words to one another. Father, we thank You for this picture of how He has loved us. And ask You now to so strengthen us in that love that we might love one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.